Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. As you know, when I meet an extraordinary woman making an extraordinary difference in the world, I want to share her work with you. So when I came across Tasha Pearson, I knew I wanted to have her join us on Love and Life. Tasha is a social worker who took a trip to Haiti, and that trip changed everything. Not only for Tasha, but for children in orphanages throughout Haiti. Her story is incredible. Her work is inspiring and profound. And I'm so pleased to have her with us today to share not only what she's doing, but to invite us to join her in ways to support families and children in Haiti. My conversation with Tasha Pearson of Haiti Mama after this. Have you heard? You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amidst single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. Tasha, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. You started as a single mom and you got your tax return. So you had a little chunk of money and it went from there. Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I'm i a social worker by trade in the United States and I was gearing up to finish my master's and got this crazy single mom tax return. At the time, I had a two and a four-year-old. I had this money, but I had a great job doing social work in the States and decided that I wanted to do something cool with the money. And out of the blue, like that's the funnest part of the story is although what's transpired through through me, really it all seems miraculous. And I don't think that I could have done it without a lot of push from the big guy. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I call the phenomenon God magic. So yes, yeah, God magic kind of transpired because the second that I offered this, this money into the universe, a friend that lived in Haiti uh, called and said, could you come to Haiti for like six months to a year? And I was like, maybe, <laughs> why? And she was like, I need a social worker to help me develop an employment program for moms here. And that was literally like 
perfect for me, like exactly my expertise and passions all in one. And I'm, I love research. So I talked my university into letting me go to Haiti and do research as a part of my master's thesis and had the money to get started with this crazy single mom tax return. So that all like transpired within two months. Like it was April 2nd that my friend called and June 2nd, I was in Haiti. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I was, I hit the ground running. My first question was what services are here on the ground in Haiti for a mother that's in poverty? So one of the like first God magic moments for me on the island was that I within a week was hooked up with a group of Haitian social work students who all needed internships. <laughs> and so I was like, I've got this like crew of 11 Haitian social workers who all need to get plugged in somewhere. And I needed to see like what services are out there. So it was just perfect. And so I ended up going out every day, like with like a gang of social workers on motos. (laughs) (laughs) We're like on motorcycles running around Haiti, ended up going on what we call the great orphanage tour. Mm -hmm. Because the response that I got when I reached out to the Haitian nonprofit communities was overwhelmingly orphanages were like, yes, come here. Yes, come help us. Yes, we need social workers. Yes, yes, yes. So my first six weeks in Haiti, myself and seven to 11 Haitian (laughs) social work (laughs) students visited 23 orphanages in the first six weeks. When we first started like visiting orphanages, we didn't exactly understand what we were seeing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It it started like evolving for all of us around orphanage 12, 13, 14. We started going like, whoa, what's happening? And it was our 23rd orphanage. And week six of research was this pivotal day because we, we visited an orphanage that had 98 kids that day, which 98 is a lot of kids. And it was dire. I mean, it was a really, really bad situation. From our first 10 minutes in the institution, we were able to identify there was sexual abuse going on. The kids were like, it was the first time that this phenomenon happened where the kids were all running to us and asking us to find their parents. Like, we had come to understand that all of the kids in orphanages in Haiti have a family outside of the orphanage. But this, this particular orphanage kids were actually like desperately asking us, like, get me out of here. So we walked out of this horrible situation and a social worker by the name of Patrick, who went on to help me found Haiti mama he lost it. He started screaming, why is my country letting this happen? These kids have families. Why are the kids living in this crazy situation when they have families? 
I was like, okay, everyone, we need to, like, everyone needs to eat. We need to just go get some food and like, everyone needs to just take a, a moment because we had just, it, it was, it was traumatic to a degree. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And the question, like, why is my country letting this happen became a huge piece of why we founded Haiti Mama, because essentially their country isn't letting this happen. Essentially, $100 million a year in funding from North American faith communities is flooding into Haiti through short-term mission teams and churches. And most of these orphanages don't actually have the permission from the Haitian government to take children from their families and raise them in an institution. The question, why is my country letting this happen, was answered with, they're not. This isn't supposed to be happening. It took us a few years to really see this data. We were suspecting and doing our own research that at least 70% of kids that we were seeing in orphanages had families living in the community. And that was just from our, our data. The official data is 80%. 80% of kids living in orphanages globally have families in the community, parents in the community. So we leave the horrible orphanage to go get food. And I carry 12 plates of food on a moto to a park. <laughs> <laughs> and I hand them all out. And I say to this group of social workers, I don't have the authority to close the orphanages in Haiti. But what I think we should consider is if we built a model of social services that worked with families and worked to reunite the kids that are in those orphanages with their families, and we were a resource for the organizations and for kids and families to be reunited and services be provided for poor families in the community, I think that that would be the best solution to what we're looking at here. Like I, I don't, I think that's the best thing we could do. And at that exact second, as I was saying that a little boy tapped me on my shoulder and asked me for my plate of food. Like he pointed at my food and was asking me for it. So of course I handed it to him right. <laughs> and I watched this little boy run through the park and he met up with a, a group of boys who then devoured my plate of food with their hands, like so hungry. And I was like, oh, Haiti, like everywhere you turn. Right, <laughs> right. So like, oh my goodness. But it was, it was just a really important moment in how Haiti Mama came to, to become Haiti Mama because I instinctively asked the social workers like mid plate, I was like, you guys should save some food for those kids over there. They look yeah. really hungry. So all the guys like saved half of their food and shared our food with these kids. And the social workers and us just like came out and we all just started asking intake questions. Like, <laughs> right. we're just sure. like, yeah. you know, name family address. Like where, what's the story here? Right. And we learned in this moment that all uh, 11 of these boys were living on the street 
and like the mama in me was like overcome by this. Like there are 11 boys sleeping on the street and they were hungry. I mean, it was bad. They were sleeping under a truck. And then it dawned on me, like this was this pivotal moment for me. I was like, this is the moment that the white person comes in and starts the orphanage. (laughs) Sure. There are kids hungry and homeless. Like I understand, like I have empathy for the good intentions in that moment, right? Like for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you you come in with your Western sensibilities and you see a problem and you want to fix it. And what I'm struck by your story is that that had been taking place. And not only were these orphanages there, there was also a ton of money coming in. You're saying a hundred million dollars per year from faith communities alone. And I'm sure there's other funds coming in. Yeah, exactly. And yet we still have generational extreme poverty. I believe Haiti a few years ago was known to be the most impoverished country in the Western hemisphere. It still is. Yes, ma'am. And you're looking at these, these orphanages and not only are the kids begging to get out and there's sexual abuse happening, which is just appalling and horrific. And then probably the most jaw dropping is that, and these kids shouldn't even be here. They have families. So as an American, and I've been to Haiti one time with my college choir many years ago, and just a a couple weeks there is enough to really give you a perspective. You just don't have, unless you've had exposure to that to some capacity, but as an American to go, what is going on? These kids do have families and there's a hundred million dollars coming in. Can we not figure out a way to link the kids back up with their moms and their dads and close down some of these sex abuse factories that are happening? That's where my head goes. (laughs) But it is. And honestly, I'm here now going into year eight of social work in Haiti and Haiti mama has become more than I could have ever dreamed back in that moment. Wow. But so far, 100% of the orphanages that I have, we have closed since those founding days have had sexual abuse. 100%. I'm waiting for one to come to me that doesn't have a sexual abuse inside. So yes, sexual abuse factories is, I think, accurate. Oh, it's just, it's so heartbreaking. And it's especially heartbreaking to think about as someone who is a Christian and I go to church and if I were sending money thinking I'm helping, right? Right. I'm doing my little tiny little part, just cutting a check and then realizing that I'm funding a perpetrator who's just sitting fat and happy with a whole group of victims that are stuck, stuck and they can't go anywhere. Completely vulnerable to that this is, perpetrator. And I'm helping to fund that. I know I, I, that has actually become a piece of my job is having to counsel people in that moment where they're realizing, Oh, the $7,000 a year I was sending to this orphanage was being run by a pedophile. <laughs> and That's... how, how heartbreaking is it to, <sighs> but I mean, those are the moments of redemption with Haiti mama. Yeah. Because I get to say, like, if you keep continue to fund what you cared for with these kids, with their families, then you you continue to write the story because the pedophile would have been there with or without your money. Yeah. What gave you the idea 
of really a paradigm shift. Like you said, when kids are in parks and they're living under a truck, the people come in and they start the orphanage, as you said. So how did you go, wait, clearly starting the orphanage is not the best plan here, but what is a plan? How did you, I'm sure it was some God magic here, but (laughs) how did you go? There's got to be a better way and I want to be part of it. Well, I mean, this is the moment where it's obvious why God sent me because I had built my career in America doing social work under a model called assertive community treatment, which works to deinstitutionalize individuals with severe and persistent mental illness in the States. So I had been working in deinstitutionalization. Wow. For four, five, I mean, yeah, like it was about five years. I was on three different ACT teams in my career and I was the vocational specialist. So my job was to help people get jobs and to stay well, (laughs) you know, but I worked under a psychiatrist and their nurse and other social workers. And we had a team that had a multidisciplinary approach to going out and serving clients and keeping them in the community. So it was crazy because that park day was on a Friday. And by Monday, I was taking a moto back down the mountain to that park to meet all of the social workers where I knew those kids might be. And I literally, I remember praying like, God, what do you want me to do? And the answer was like, so clear. He was like, social work, you know what to do. Right. Oh yeah. I love that. I do. (laughs) Yeah. Like you're like, I'm already equipped. I really am. God's already equipped me to plug in right where it was needed. And he had already given me a team. Yeah. (laughs) So great. I love it. So I met, I met the kids again with the social workers. I fed them again. And then I had a meeting with that group of guys and I pitched Haiti Mama to them. I just said, here's what I think. I think we start with these 11 kids because that's the moment that white people are starting an orphanage. But let's say instead of starting an orphanage, we can assume 80% of these kids also have families Uh, just like kids in orphanages. So let's just start fresh so we don't have to get engulfed in all of the ickies of all of these other orphanages right now, but let's just build a family service model. (laughs) And and it worked (laughs) like really well. (laughs) So within a year, we had 90% of our first 11 boys back with their families and all of the kids within those families being educated because that is the number one reason a parent is going to relinquish their child to an orphanage is because they are unable to feed or unable to educate them. And so when we went to the families, we said, get your kid off the streets and we're going to help. And we're going to make sure that everybody is not starving to death, then we're going to make sure everyone's going to school. But it's your job to make sure that your kid is here sleeping every night. And it was like an eye rolling done deal for all of the mamas. They were like, yeah, of course. Like, of course, this is the best thing ever. I mean, I had mamas literally telling me, I prayed for you. I prayed for you to come. You you are at my door because I've been praying for you. <laughs> oh my gosh. That gets me so emotional. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cause I was, I wanted to ask you, so it 
most of these mamas, like you said, they did not have the resources to feed their own children. So they basically said, you know, go fend for yourself. The kids were out on the streets begging. I mean, that was the the kids were out begging. Yeah. So you mentioned a family service model. So for those who aren't in the field of social work, what would this look like? Kind of a wraparound model to whatever the family needs to remain intact, you wanted to plug in those services. Exactly. And so like the first two years of us building the family service model, every day we would meet just like assertive community treatment does in the States. The team meets once a day. I just kept that because it worked in my mind. It was, it was effective. And so every day we met and the, the social, the Haitian social workers were out like meeting with families and kids and working on education and, and all the things, but every day we would meet and I would kind of teach them the next best practice of social work. And they would teach me how we could translate that into their culture. So two years, it was me going, this is what the evidence-based practice would be for this family. And then they would say, well, this is how it could work in Haiti. And it took us over two years to really tweak it culturally yeah, yeah, and find like a balance with dependency and lots of little idiosyncrasies about it. But so as they were kind of teaching me Haiti and I was teaching them social work, we worked with these families with the focus of, I just kept basing everything we did looking at systems theory, which is just saying that you don't look at an individual as an individual. So like, that's kind of what the orphanages are doing wrong is that they are just taking the individual child out of the system yeah. and providing services that aren't, aren't working. And so instead, we just we focused on plugging the kids back into their systems and plugging the families into their systems too. So getting the kid back into the family and then the family being in a safe community. And then in America, we would look towards what schools and government assistances we could find. But in Haiti, we kind of pioneered what we could do for assistance that would make sense. Assistance actually is a really tricky piece to our model. There's just a piece of Haitian culture where if it's done once, it's expected always. Like that's kind it's not just with assistance. It's just kind of with everything. Like things quickly become an expectation, like almost immediately where that's not how we think in the States. So we had to be really careful about food assistance and stuff like that. And we just quickly realized that employment was the answer to really all the problems. I mean, (laughs) if a parent had a job, it solved everything pretty much. And so our first couple of years of building the model, we were just looking at the social service side of it. But then we quickly realized that we had to be building employment programs simultaneously, or we were creating dependency. Right. Another important piece to the orphanage system in regards to parents is the money flooding in from churches and faith communities from North America is creating a business out of orphanages in Haiti. Oh, God. So parents aren't educated on 
the risks of their child growing up in an institution, they're, they're usually recruited. This is going to be the best life for your child. And we're going to provide them with education and they may even get to go to America, you know, things like that. So, so that when the, when the teams come, there are kids and we see more often than not that kids origin stories are fabricated for donors Oh keep the business running. So a huge part of my job now as the storyteller <laughs> is yeah. to educate Haitian parents and American donors on the harm of children growing up in an institution. So that's, yeah, but it makes perfect sense, right? It's reinforcing something that's in place and as evil as it is with pedophilia running rampant and faith-based institutions in America bankrolling it. I mean, it's hideous, but you can see it happening. Of course, they're going to want kids because this is a business now and they need kids in those beds so they can tell their sob stories and get those dollars coming in. Exactly. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the Work With Me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns, will target limiting beliefs and thought patterns, will learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood, will identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals, and will together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. So as I listen to you, I'm completely inspired by the initiative that you took and your heart and what you've done. And I'm moved by, you you were a disruptor. There was this ongoing entrenched systemic way of managing this poverty and families in poverty, which then led to sexual abuse running rampant. And you came in and you were a disruptor. And I'm, as you tell this story, I have these emotions of how overwhelming it must have been. And I love that you said, okay, we're starting with these kids under the truck in the park. That's where we got to start. And also sharing that you took a treatment plan from your training here in the States and said, okay, here's what we would do for this family service model. And you had your 11 interns going, okay, that's not going to work in Haiti, (laughs) right? Like there's cultural realities that you had to make some adjustments. There's some nuance there. And for them to then be teaching you, like you said, they taught you Haiti while you taught them social work. And now the model's quite different. So tell us a little bit about Haiti Mama and how you're able to provide these services to keep families intact and plug in some of those gaps. But then also, I was really struck by what you said about dependency, because that is a a reality, no matter what kind of program that anyone establishes, and it sounds like culturally speaking, this may be something that might happen in Haiti, but it certainly happens anywhere. And this is just human nature. If someone receives something, there's a lack of ownership. And so one of the things that, and I used to work in the inner city and did a lot of work in uh, foster care in Southside Chicago as a therapist. And one of the things you see when folks are 
part of, quote unquote, a system and there are entitlements. And I don't like that word because then some people will just rip away those entitlements. And it's like, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about the human condition. And it sounds like something that you were noticing in Haiti is that without a job, without employment, yes, the handout may be a quick fix. It's a little Band-Aid. But we're not solving the crisis of the human condition, the dignity of a person to know that I am contributing to society in a meaningful way. That's what a job does. I have purpose and meaning. I have a reason to get up in the morning and I can stand up straight and tall because I'm doing something that matters. I'm contributing to my fellow man, to society by virtue of my job. And that's something that I believe is so important when I look at the human psyche and how we're wired. And so what you're doing is providing that. So that trickle down in that family for that mama to have a job, which allows her to keep her children in her home, feed them and send them to school and also gives her a sense of, yeah, I'm doing something and how empowering. I just love it. So speak to that element of Haiti Mama. Dignity, that's such an important word in the model that we use. A Haitian actually explained it to me perfectly. He said, we don't want to always approach you with our hand up, like reaching out for you to put something in it. The way to help is to give the opportunity for for me to put my hand upside down to give something. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It like, I was like, that's dignity in Haiti. I loved that. And that meant a lot for me. So throughout the years, I always remember like giving someone the opportunity to give themselves is the most important thing we can do. So Haiti mama has blown up. I didn't, I didn't anticipate this, (laughs) but we, we eventually partnered with the Haitian government to help them close orphanages because the Haitian government went through in 2016 and 17 and did an assessment on the health and wellness of kids within each of the orphanages that they were aware of. And within that assessment, they identified 200 that are considered code red and need to be closed immediately for sexual abuse and trafficking. So like I've mentioned before, $100 million a year is coming in to support orphanages, but the Haitian government, uh, like the child protection services, their annual budget is a little over a million dollars a year. (laughs) So they are way outweighed here. Yeah. And so it it did take quite a while for us to build their trust and I I completely understand why the directrice general the the general director of Haitian Social Services said to me once, I don't understand why the white people foreigners come to Haiti and tell me or tell us what they're going to do instead of asking, what do you need? And I was like, it is so white privilege of us that that's what happens. <laughs> like, it really is. So we asked her, what, what can we do to help with this orphanage crisis? And we've become a strong partner for their social service office in Port-au-Prince. We've worked with them to close we're working on our sixth orphanage right now. Wow. 
yeah, it, that to me right there is just like shocking that we've come that far already. But we've also built up our job creation capacity. Like that became so important as we're reuniting children with their families. We know what's coming. We know that these 20 families need jobs. Yeah. And so to avoid going into a stage of dependency with families, we want to be able to give them a job as quickly as possible. Yeah. Are you looking for customized, personalized gifts? Mugshop Montreal by Brie Jackson has got you covered. She offers a beautiful selection of high-quality, personalized custom products. What started off as a fun project for family and friends soon developed into a passion for creating custom keepsakes for anyone, for any occasion. She decided to take the plunge and follow her artistic vision by creating Mug Shop Montreal, a home-based business where she collaborates directly with her clients, using their inspiration to design a detailed, heartwarming souvenir that many have given as gifts or have decided to keep for themselves. You can visit her on Instagram and Facebook at Mug Shop Montreal to browse her lovely products. Yeah, so let's talk about the jobs specifically. So what kind of jobs are you able to provide that weren't there before because some of these mamas probably wanted to work but couldn't find jobs? So yeah, tell the listeners a little bit about the jobs that you've been able to create. So my very first employment program was actually a social service program because as we continued to go into orphanages, we were seeing some kids with disabilities in crisis, like actual crisis. Specifically, there was one orphanage when we first went there in 2014. They had eight kids with some variants of disabilities that resemble cerebral palsy nonverbal, nonmobile, need kids that needed assistance with eating. And they were all, every time that we visited, they were all laying on a balcony on foam mats. They were being fed while laying down. So they were all aspirating. It was really, really bad. I never let those kids out of my sight. Like I was building a social work model with the first 11 boys and their families, but I continued to go up to that orphanage and bring every medical team that I ever ran into. I'm like, I have someplace you need to go. And I would, I kept trying to find resources for these kids, but I went through like a six month period where I didn't visit. And I went back up after six months and two of them had passed away. And I called my board of directors and (laughs) bawling. And I was like, if we don't do it, they're all going to die. Like, that's what I just realized. Like, I kept thinking something was coming for these kids. And it's not. Like, it's me. I'm the only one coming for these kids. Oh, God. (sighs) So, So anyway, I I have one board member who is the mama of a handsome son with disabilities and her and her husband wrote me an email like five minutes after that board meeting and we're like start the disability care program we've got the money we're gonna we're gonna make it happen and so I went to the Haitian government and I said we've got to get these kids out of here they're gonna die please can I intervene and although I am essentially the anti-orphanage person in Haiti the only thing there was for me to do was take those kids into 
my care. And so they approved and we started. It's one of the most beautiful, like full circle moments because the original mamas, like my first 11 mamas mm-hmm. were all really awesome caretakers at heart. And it was like this perfect answer for them for employment because I didn't have to worry about literacy. I didn't have to worry about skills. I didn't have to worry about selling anything. I just had to ensure that they were trained to love these kids. So I set our disability care program up with a one-to-one care ratio. Each kid had their own mama with them at all times. And the kids are doing awesome. They're still with us. All of the original mamas are still employed at Disability oh, Care. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh yeah. And it makes Haiti Mama like really feel like a family, no matter how big we get. The women who met me when I like was on the island for my first two months are still like a part of Haiti Mama mm. every day. And so they also like have wonderful stories to tell. Well, when I sat with the Haitian government the first time and asked them about starting this disability care program, I originally asked them if I could set it up with the kids transitioning into a foster care setting. Like if they had one-on-one care ratio and the moms and them had an awesome bond, then the kids could go into foster care. And at the time, the Haitian government said, we're not, we're not ready for foster care. Like you can take the kids out of the orphanage they're in, but don't move them into homes yet. We're, we want foster care for Haiti too, but we're not there. But that's like one of the most exciting things that's happening right now in social work in Haiti is that the government has finally gotten to the point where they're letting us do foster care. So we're, yeah, so we're working with the Haitian government on their literal first foster care system in Haiti. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's amazing. Right? That is amazing. Oh my gosh. Uh, Yeah. So did you have any pushback then from some of these directors of these orphanages when you're shutting them down to the best of your ability? I would imagine some people were not so pleased because they didn't have their they're institutions of pedophilia. I mean, like, was that, did people come at you? I mean, these things happen. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Every orphanage is in Haiti, they say tetchage, which means brain load, literally, but it just means like there is a problem within a problem within a problem within a problem. Mm, so mm-hmm. every orphanage is tetchage. <laughs> like, <laughs> always so many things that you have to take into consideration. But that's the beauty of having awesome social workers is I know who to send in to do the best assessment and who is my best social worker for for reunification. And, and, and so they all use their skills to help us get it done. The other nice thing is we're working with the government. So in the scary moments, the government's going in with the police and we're just waiting in the background for for everything to clear out. But we have an open case with Homeland Security for an American pedophile right now that 
they're tracking and trying to get arrested. So, I mean, there's always crazy moving parts. Yes. What ends up happening a lot for us is when we close an orphanage, if we're putting people out of work, we either will, if, if somebody could come work for us or we could find something for them to do, we'll do that. Otherwise we educate the kids. So like I have a roster of kids (laughs) that I educate every year and their moms were nannies at an orphanage that I closed. And that was like me going, I'm sorry that I had to close your orphanage and take away your job. I will keep your kids in school. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then are they able to do some other work with another context or are they making jewelry for you or is any kind of other options for them? Yeah, it really just depends on the context of us having to close the orphanage. If we're able to build relationships with them and keep them employed with us, or if it's too dangerous, we can't. But I have, at, I can't. I don't even know off the top of my head, but I have at least four four former orphanage nannies that work at Haiti Mama. I think. Four. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they're so happy to be in a healthy work environment where they know that they're able to do the work that they want to do without all the evil goings on. Cause I'm sure that would be very painful for them to have a sense that stuff was happening and maybe feeling that they didn't know what they could do or how to protect these kids. Yeah. That's, and that's the trouble with, with poverty is the person with the money has all the control. So yeah, you know, the nanny at the orphanage is afraid to report something because right. and she might not have a job. And further than that, they, they are afraid, you know, they are afraid for right for that. Right. That someone re- would retaliate against them for being a whistleblower. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. So Tasha, also along the way, you went from a single mama yourself and you in Haiti, there's a bit of a love story here that you haven't shared yet. Yes, there is a bit of a love story with <laughs> <laughs> I was married I my first time being married I was 25 and I married a narcissist. <laughs> oh. um, and there was there was quite a bit of domestic violence in our relationship and um he left he left me when our oldest uh my oldest son was seven months old. But in that, with him leaving and then me going through a divorce, I felt this, I like, I felt like I had a new life. I remember like I wrote the words I'm free on a notebook, like a Mm. thousand times. Like I felt liberated and I didn't want to take like my second chance at life for granted. Like I, I could do anything I wanted at that point, (laughs) even though I was a single mom, you know? And so I like, I declared that I said, I'm never getting married again. I'm married to the world. I can do so much more with my life if I'm not worrying about men and I'm, I'm going to go do stuff. I'm going to like, I'm not even worrying about this anymore. You know, I'm done with relationships. 
And so, I mean, amazingly, (laughs) I spoke those words and Haiti Mama was born in the time that I was single. But when I was starting the disability care program and I brought the kids to Haiti Mama, they were sick. I mean, they were Mm. about to die sick. And so... I needed to have them, I mean, hospitalizations were happening constantly. I had to have them in and out of doctors, therapy, everything, like constantly. But Haiti's medical system is crazy. So I needed a driver. At that point, I really needed somebody to be driving for us and helping us get it all done. Yeah. But I, every driver I knew wanted like $100 a day to do it. And I was like... I don't have a hundred dollars a day right. to, you to drive kids around with disabilities. Like the lowest I got any guy was $70. And I was, and, and I knew this guy and I looked at him and I was like, look at these kids. I don't have $70 to take away from them. Just do it for the kids. Please do it for the kids. And he said, I don't want to do it for the kids, but I know somebody who will. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He's honest. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then the next day, Mondizi showed up and this was the driver who was coming that would give me good prices for the kids. And it was like remarkable how amazing he was and how much he actually loved kids kids and cared. I mean, his first day, I remember Mondizi's first day, we had two kids that had appointments and one was hospitalized. And in Haiti, you have to bring your own food to feed the kids. You have to bring your own bedding, your own clothes, like everything. Or even if the hospital says you need to be giving this kid this prescription while they're here, somebody has to go to the pharmacy and get what the doctor wants and bring it back to the hospital. So I remember the first wow. day that he was like our, he, Mondizi was our driver. He <laughs> was back and forth to Haiti mama a hundred times. And he kept saying things like, so this mama's at the hospital still and she needs lunch. This kid needs clothes because they threw up. Like he was like, doing so much. And I was like, okay, cool. And all the mamas came to me through that week, his first week and were like, hire him. And (laughs) I was like, okay, he's our guy. And I couldn't even say his name at the time. Mondizi was really hard for me. And I just called him the beautiful (laughs) driver. (laughs) (laughs) Bell chauffeur, but I called him. And he became our number one in... Uh, transportation and logistics, like immediately he was our guy. And so my husband now worked for me for two years, (laughs) two and a half years. (laughs) And then um, one of my best friends came to Haiti. She was going through a divorce and she was like, you know, checking all the guys out and everything. And I was like, (laughs) Hey, I was like, I think our driver's single. You, I was like, you can go talk to our driver. And she was like, if your beautiful driver is single, why are you not going for your driver? And (laughs) I like watched him the whole weekend. We were, we had taken my friend out of town. So he was with, and I like stared at him. Like, why do I not find any interest in you? And by the end of that weekend, 
I was like, oh, you're my husband. Like, I think we're supposed to marry you, actually. Like, <laughs> that's a 180. <laughs> so it really is so fast. And because we'd been by each other's side working for two and a half years, there wasn't this like annoying dating period. We just like, I mean, we just were instantly a couple and it was easy. I remember him asking me, do you, have you loved me for as long as I've loved you? And I was like, um, no, (laughs) I was like, not really. How long have you loved me? And he said, why do you think I've been giving you these good prices all these years? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So we were married. It's been two years. We've been married and we've had a little baby. Oh, so Solomon and Mondizi, we all live in the States now. So we're here and Haiti is like really, really bad. So we don't foresee ourselves going back to live anytime soon because we can't get our kids safely to school. But my husband is dreamy. Like he's very handsome. And <laughs> I laugh because I'm like, I was not looking. You were the most handsome man on earth was standing in front of me and I wasn't even thinking about it. But yeah, he's, he's awesome. He is, has a similar heart, you know, to me. We both mm. care about the same things. Well, it sounds like you just had shut down that part of you. You, like you said, marriage, I'd been there, done that. I'm now going to pivot into marrying the world and having a heart for all these concerns. And so even when love was right in front of you, you just weren't open to it, which I think is very, it was a mindset thing. And then thank goodness your friend was like, what is your problem? (laughs) Like, seriously, what's your problem? Because there is much hotness right in front of you. (laughs) I listening to your podcast there, you said something that reminded me of when he and I started our relationship and started taking our relationship further. He, he said, I need a simple love. I, Mm. and I was like, exactly. Like, it's something about being 37 and, you know, like just if we're going to do this, I'm not arguing. We're not talking about relationships. Like, <laughs> right. let's just be simple. Yeah. Um, and for the most part, we've kept it simple. <laughs> yeah. So well, that's yeah. pretty impressive with living here as opposed to there and a new baby than your son's. So. Yeah, that's, that's a lot to juggle. There's always there's going to be enough to to manage in a relationship. We don't need to create drama for drama's sake. I yeah, I always talk about I really believe that the right relationship should be pretty fluid and should be pretty easy. And it sounds like it was for you and Mondizo. Did I say that right? Mondizi. Mondizi. Yeah, it it was probably pretty fluid because like you said you had this foundation of a common values and common desires to be a part of the solution to some really tragic things in your in your environment and you had that that intimacy of just being really good friends. It's I mean you obviously had that connection and so the the final piece was just 
the uh, the romantic piece, which apparently poor man had been waiting, <laughs> waiting for so long. Like, I don't know how much I have to show this woman through like giving her basically free shuttle services for her children in, in her program. <laughs> now that we're married, there's times he'll be like, do you remember when you paid me $20 to do da-da-da-da-da? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I was horrible. Thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> so funny. So funny. Well, Tasha, as we wrap up, I know that you, as part of Haiti Mama, you do employ women to make beautiful jewelry pieces and that there's a way for listeners to be a part of that if they'd like to. And then also your boxes. Let's talk about that as we wrap things up. Yes. Right now, I would say the two best ways to get involved and empower the mamas that were reuniting with their children would be to either subscribe to our box. We have a subscription box. It's quarterly. So the next box we're work the box we're working on right now ships in August, but you can currently get the summer welcome box, and then that subscription will get you the August box. So it is fifty nine dollars, and we have a hundred and eighty dollars worth of retail valued items inside. Usually, about eight items, and we curate and design them ourselves, and they are. It, everything in it is fabulous. I literally stand by our box because I think the fact that we are getting to produce things and that the goal of our box is to create jobs actually works to our benefit to make it like above all of the rest of the boxes out there. Like really, ours is really, really good. <laughs> so check it out. It's called Mama to Mama Box and you can find it on the Instagram or... If you'd like to help us raise some money, we have an, a campaign with earrings that we make at Haiti Mama. I send you a pack of earrings. It's called T-Pack A, which is the Haitian way of saying a small pack. <laughs> I send you a small pack of earrings. You get to keep your favorite two pairs. Sell the rest for me to your friends for $15 a pop, which is a sale, like usually they retail for 20. So they're easy to sell and you just return money to Haiti mama and you totally help us sell earrings and raise money. So both of T-Pack A and the mama to mama box are on the website at HaitiMama.org. And if you want to reach out to just give a donation, please do that too, because all of our Job creation revenue goes directly into job creation and we sustain our social work through donations. So both are welcome and we need them both. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your story of the origin of Haiti Mama. And it's a disruptive organization you've created and in the best way, creating a a different path. I'm really struck by it. now you're working in partnership with the government and foster care, which has not been part of the Haitian culture is now something that they're moving toward. And that's, it's really amazing, Tasha. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me and for spreading the love through your podcast. I really love it. Thank you. And one more shout out to all your socials. Yes. 
So Instagram and Facebook, Haiti Mama, H-A-I-T-I-M-A-M-A. And yeah, that's where you'll find us. All right. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you too. The love and life hack for this week is God magic happens. And no, most of us won't disrupt Haiti's child welfare system like Tasha did, but we can support her work through purchasing the Mama to Mama boxes and selling beautiful Haitian-made earrings to our friends through the Tea campaign. As always, thank you so very much for sharing a portion of your day with me. And thanks to those of you who've rated and reviewed Love and Life on Apple Podcasts. And for those of you who've shared the program with your friends, I'm truly grateful. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson Abram.